Please open your word to John chapter 12. We are going to have our New Testament reading is the first eight verses. Uh, If you notice uh, the growing tension uh, between those who are wanting to crucify Christ, the service of Jesus' dear friend, the hypocrisy of Judas, and ultimately the prophecy that Jesus gives in the midst of what his friend is doing. Uh, So let's begin. Six days before the Passover, uh, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this uh, ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having, char- uh, and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what, he was, uh, to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the, for the day of my burial. For the, poor you, um, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And our sermon text comes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, music team. I echo Ty's cinnamon. I love singing with you. And uh, I appreciate uh, Ty's leadership in that. I know it's got to be hard to pick songs because it's such a wonderful subject matter, singing about Jesus, singing about the gospel, singing about God. Man, I hate to have to narrow that down to four or five songs every week. Uh, But I kind of struggle with that, too, with the names of Jesus. I mean, there's so many. There's so many. So it doesn't look like we're going to finish the alphabet by New Year's, so sorry about that. Uh, We're the letter S. If you're visiting with us uh, for the first time, we're in a study of the names of Jesus from Scripture, and we've just gone alphabetically, starting with the letter A, Alpha and Omega. We started there, and now we're at the letter S. Um, So, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, said this, I do not believe that I have a wish in all the world 
except to know more of my master. So I ask you this morning, what is your greatest wish? What is your greatest wish? And what is your wish this morning? Why are you here? I I pray it's to know more of your master, because that's what we're striving to do in this study. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for another day with your people. Thank you for another day singing together with them. Thank you for another day studying your word with them. Thank you for being our God and saving us and making us your people. What a blessing. And now teach us today, Father, about our Savior and our Shepherd. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's just dive right in. More names of Jesus if you're using your uh, sermon sheet there. Uh, Number one, we're going to try to get two today. Uh, Number one, He is our Savior. He is our Savior. Uh, And I'm using Luke 2.11, very timely verse for this season we're about to enter into. Luke 2.11, the... uh, The angel said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus is our Savior. He's the only Savior. He's the only one who could save us. And I'm so thankful, and we are all so thankful, and we're about to celebrate Once again, the birth of our Savior. And I I can't wait to celebrate another Christmas with you, my church family. But for this morning, let's ponder this question together. What kind of Savior is Jesus? What kind of Savior is Jesus? Well, let's look at some of the things that the Bible says. Okay, number one, He's a loving Savior. He's a loving Savior. Psalm 17, verse 7. The psalmist writes and prays, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. This is an amazing request, an amazing prayer request. The psalmist asks the Lord to wondrously show, not just show, but to wondrously show your steadfast love. And the, the word wonder, the, the word that's translated wondrously show means to display in such a way as to inspire wonder. To display, to show, to demonstrate in such a way as to inspire, promote, provoke, motivate a sense of wonder. So I ask you this morning, are you blown away by the reality of Christ's love for you? Does that blow you away? Or do you just take it for granted? You know, just, hey, yeah, I'm glad he loves. Are you blown away by it? Are you, are you inspired to wonder as we sang, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. This was Paul's prayer. Paul actually prayed this for us when he wrote uh, verses uh, 18 and 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. 
in those verses, he prays for believers that we, quote, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We've talked about this before. We've looked at this verse many times. But that's an amazing statement. Paul is praying that we would know something that is beyond knowledge. That we would know something experientially in our hearts that can't be known with just our brain. So that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. I I pray for us right now. My prayer for us this morning is that the thought of that, that those words that that Paul wrote 2,000-some years ago would inspire wonder in us all, that we would grow in the knowledge of Jesus' love for us that can't be known just with our head, that we would know it in our heart, that we would know it experientially, in our communion and fellowship with our Lord, both corporately at this table, individually in our times in the Word, on our own time with Him, that we would just be blown away, that wonder would be gloriously inspired by the thought of the love of Christ for us, the the wide, long, deep love of Jesus that can't be known with just our head. That's my prayer for us. How how did the Savior wondrously demonstrate his steadfast love to us? Well, we, we know the answer to that. But God proves his love for us in this, in that while we were sinners, what? Christ died for us. By dying in our place on the cross, Jesus has wondrously shown God's steadfast love for us. The hymn writer expresses it. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this? He can't even change the wording. He just keeps saying it. What wondrous love is this that calls the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. This truly is wondrous love. And Jesus has, has wondrously demonstrated it by his death on the cross. So he's a loving Savior. Secondly, he's a solitary Savior. He's a solitary Savior. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. Jesus is it. He's a solitary Savior. He's the only one. He's the only one that can save us. Peter, our beloved Peter, he said this on two occasions. Once before the cross to Jesus, and then once after the cross and the resurrection to the Jewish religious leaders. Before the cross, in John 6, we're familiar with that chapter, heavy-duty chapter, 
Jesus said some heavy-duty things there. That's where he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Many were offended by this, and they began to leave, began to bail out. Jesus looked at his 12 and said, you're going to leave me too? Let's pick up at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Why did he say that? Because he's it. You're it. You're it. You're the only one. You're the solitary Savior. There is no Savior besides you. Where else will we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not a Holy One of God. The. The only one. The only Holy One of God. You're it. There's no other Savior. There's no other incarnate God. There's no other Word made flesh. There's no other Messiah. There's no other King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no other. You plug in any name we've studied. There's no other one. He's it. Jesus is it. He's the solitary Savior. Number three, he's an authoritative Savior. He's an authoritative Savior. Acts 5, verse 29 to 31. This is after uh, the apostles have been told to quit talking about Jesus, quit preaching about Jesus. They've healed a man. They've just upset the world. Uh, They're called into the council, and they tell them again, we told you, quit Quit preaching Jesus. You, go, you stop this. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Gosh, I pray the church will hear that in this day that we live in. Man, I pray the church will, will hear that once again. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as, watch this, leader and Savior. Leader and Savior. Leader. We're going to talk about that word in just a minute. Leader and Savior to give repentance. Repentance is a gift. You don't drum it up out of your own depths of your own depraved soul. It's a gift. To give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So let's focus for a moment on the title leader that Peter has placed side by side with the word we're studying, with the title we're studying, Savior, leader and Savior. The Greek word is archegos, which carries the connotation of someone who is more than a leader, more than a ruler. He is that, okay? He is a leader, but he's also the founder. It also refers to someone who's the found, not only the leader, but the founder and originator. In other words, it's like a pioneer. In fact, some translations translate it that way. Pioneer. He's a pioneer. He's one who takes the lead and goes before so that others may follow. Now, that connects to an obvious question, right? To an uh, obvious uh, reminder. What was one of Jesus' 
when he was on the planet, when he walked the planet, and the, the Gospels tell us about, what was one of, of Jesus' most simple yet profound commands? Follow me. Follow me. And he never said, decide for me. Okay? He never said, okay, make a mental decision, check the box off, and you're good. No, he said, follow me. Demonstrate that mental decision, which needs to be made. Demonstrate that mental decision with action of walking with me, of walking as I walk, 1 John 2, 6. Follow me. Had a great discussion of that in the new members class this morning. What a great group, man. So Jesus is the pioneer, the leader that we are to follow. In Acts 3.15, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. Guess what? Same word there. Same archegos that's, def- that's translated leader in Acts 5. As Savior, Jesus gives us life, abundant life, true life, spiritual life, eternal life. He, he gives us life as Savior, and then as leader or author, He then leads us in that new abundant life. Got it? He doesn't just save us and then leave us alone. He saves us and then leads us. And we're called to follow. And the following proves we've confessed Him as Lord. Proves we've made the right biblical mental decision. Enabled by the Holy Spirit of God who has quickened our dead hearts and given us life. So as Savior Jesus gives us life and then leads us in that new and abundant life. In Hebrews 2.10, Jesus is called the founder of our salvation. Guess what? Same word. Same Greek word. So as Savior, Jesus gives us salvation. In other words, he's the originator of it. And then leads us by his Spirit to work it out. Just as Philippians 2, 12, and 13 say, work out your salvation, right, in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. In Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus is called the founder and perfecter of our faith. Same word. So as Savior, Jesus grants us faith to believe in him. He originates our faith and then leads us as we walk in faith. So he's an authoritative Savior that we humbly, joyfully, gladly, imperfectly, but growing follow. Because our Savior originates our life, both physical and spiritual. See, Jesus owns us twice, you know. He created us physically, and then he recreated us in the new birth. He owns us by creation and then by redemption. Jesus twice owns us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. 
And because he originates our life, both physically and spiritually, and because he also leads us in our new life, he has total authority over our life. He owns us. And therefore, he's an authoritative Savior. And it's a loving authority. It's a loving authority because he is, a lo- as we've already seen in item one of, of this inexhaustible list, no list is exhaustive, right? That's one of the main rules of our church family. Okay. You can add to the list later today. It's a loving authority because he's a loving Savior. We can trust his leadership. We never go wrong by doing what Jesus says. Doesn't mean it won't be painful. Doesn't mean it won't upset people. Doesn't mean it won't make life harder. But it'll never make life wrong when we follow Jesus, when we obey our authoritative Savior. We can trust His Leadership. I'm reminded of the hymn by Ernest Shirtleff. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation, thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow, not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning where'er thy face appears. The cross is lifted o'er us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Lead on, O loving Savior. We are yours. We will follow. Help us to do that. Dear unsaved person, please understand this. If you're here today, if there's one of you here today, please know this. Please understand this. Even though you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, okay, even though you've not confessed his authority, he's still your ultimate authority. In the sense that you will ultimately answer to him. One day, you will stand before him and you will confess his authority. You will bow to his lordship right before you are eternally consumed by the second death. And speaking of that, fourth on our list, Jesus is a death-abolishing Savior. He's a death-abolishing Savior. This is is glorious good news. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Paul is speaking to his his, his disciple, Timothy, and he's telling him not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
in other words, following Jesus may result in suffering. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. Okay? Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Another scripture that points to our election before the foundation of the world. Before the ages began. Okay. God called us to himself, to a holy calling. Not because of our works. Not because he looked down the corridor of time and saw that we were going to do these works. No, that, no, no, no. But because of his own purpose, his own purpose and grace, undeserved favor which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior. There's our title for this morning. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who, guess what? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word abolished, the Greek word katergeo, means to put an end to something, to cause something to become inoperative or useless. And that, it's that second phrase that we want to emphasize. Because we all know that Jesus did not bring an end to physical death. You know, we're reminded of that all the time. We're reminded of that when we walk into this building and we see those plaques of those beautiful loved ones that have already gone on to be with Jesus. So abolishing death doesn't mean an end of physical death. He didn't bring an end to that. Christians die physically. Every one of us will die physically if Jesus doesn't come back first. But he gloriously and wonderfully and undeservedly abolished death in that he rendered it useless and inoperative. It, it is no longer a means for sending a believer to hell. As the psalmist said, and as Ty reminded us, we walk through the shadow of death. For the believer, physical death is just a shadow of the punishment it was meant to lead to. Like a shadow, it has no substance. It has no power to send the saved believer to hell. So it's been rendered inoperative. The number one weapon of Satan has been rendered useless. But this is not so for the unsafe person. Physical death leads the unbeliever into what the Bible calls the second death. A never-ending eternity of torment and punishment in hell. Listen to Revelation 21, beginning at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But, ugh. The good news is only as good as the bad news is bad, right? But as for the cowardly, interesting that that's first on the list, but that's another message for another day. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just reading that makes my knees a little weak. But this is what God has said. The person who says, my God will, is a loving God. He would never send anyone to hell. I, I'm sorry to say, but your God isn't the God of the Bible. This second death that we read about, this is what our Savior has abolished for his people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's done away with it. He's rendered it inoperative in our future. Are we glad or what? Even while at the same time we're heartbroken for our unsaved loved ones and we desperately pray for them right now. No second death for us. Hallelujah. Physical death for us instead of leading us into the horror of the second death, leads us into the glorious fullness of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed be the name of Jesus, our death-abolishing Savior. Number five, He's a divine Savior. He's a divine Savior. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice that grace doesn't just save us from hell, okay? Grace trains us, trains us to live properly, to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Savior. So our Savior is God. This is great news. In fact, that's the only Savior that could have saved us. And it's a great reminder because we've already talked about Jesus when we were on the letter G. Remember, the God-man. We've already just talked about this, so we won't elaborate again, but let's just remember Let's just be reminded, which is always a good thing because we're forgetful. At least I am. You may have perfect memory. You remember all the things you've learned spiritually. Praise the Lord, okay? But I don't. I need reminders. I need reminders. And here's one. My Savior is God. 
Jesus is my God and my Savior. And that's always a good thing to remember. That the one who rescued us is the same one who created us and all things. The one who saves us from the second death is the one who gave us our first breath. Our Savior is God, the undefeated one. If that doesn't give you comfort, nothing will. Nothing really will. Finally, in the list, number six, and again, you can add to the list. Jesus is a universal Savior. He's a universal Savior. 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. A universal Savior. He's the Savior for the whole world. Please note, not every individual in the world, but every type of person in the whole world. John comments on this very helpfully in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, when he writes, And they, they being the creatures around the throne of God and the elders around the throne that you read about in those early chapters of Revelation, and then, then, then at the end again, they're, they're always worshiping, man. They're, they're always bowing down before the throne. They're th- casting their crowns. They're, they're worshiping constantly. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from, key word, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus, in that sense, in the sense that every ethnic group, will be represented in heaven. In that sense, he is a universal Savior. He is a non-prejudicial Savior. He is an unbiased Savior. He saves every kind of person from the human race. One race, the human race, the fallen race of Adam. One race, different ethnos, different people group, different ethnic groups within that race. And he, Jesus saves every kind of person from the race of humanity. Every single people group, every sing, single ethnic group, every single tribe, every single, single language will be represented in heaven. So I ask you this question. Are you prejudiced against any particular kind of person if so do you realize that that kind of person will be in heaven they will be there now I'm thinking that you're not I I think I I mean I don't know the church family perfectly I know I I understand that but just from being around you I, I think I know the answer to that that you're not. But, but just, in, just if you are, just please know that every kind of human being will be represented in heaven. And so I hope you're okay with that. Steve Timmis and Tim Chester in their book, Gospel-Centered Life, write this. The gospel is transcultural. 
It unites people of different ethnic groups and cultures so that what unites them, i.e. Christ, is more important than what divides them, like cultural diversity. The church must witness to the reconciling nature of the gospel and the vision of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And let me throw in a John Piper here. He said, quote, Christ died to ransom worshipers from every ethnic group on the planet. Martin Luther King's dream, while commendable, was partial. God has the ultimate dream and the ultimate purpose for all tribes and languages and peoples and nations, united in a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. One last point I want to make real quick regarding this name, and we must make sure we understand. As wonderful and powerful and protecting and divine and universal a Savior Jesus is, we are not saved by accepting Jesus as our Savior. Please hear this. That's not even a biblical phrase. Okay, we're not called to accept Jesus as Savior. We're blessed and fortunate that he accepts us. Let me try to illustrate with my own personal testimony that many of you have heard, some newer folks haven't. Real quick, I've got to give you the short version. Uh, raised in a Methodist family, uh, baptized as an infant, um, attended the confirmation class at age 12, thought I was a Christian because every important person in my life told me I was. Parents, pastor, Sunday school teacher, Sunday school, uh, what do they call them back then? Uh, Sunday school superintendent, uh, VBS. Every, everybody told me I was a Christian. So, okay, good, great. That's awesome. Good. I'm glad to be one. That's great. But didn't do what we, talk, we were talking about earlier. I didn't follow Jesus. Didn't follow, didn't, never committed to following Jesus. No, we never confessed him as Lord. I accepted him as Savior. Fast forward, age 27, 1980, April 1st, guest revival preacher at our Methodist church. Preached the word, man, just bam. I remember the title of the message, Christ's Cosmic Chain Gang from Colossians chapter 2, where he led captivity captive. Got saved that night. It was a Tuesday night, I believe. Got saved, got saved. And I'm not saying that to say you've got to know an exact date or time, please. The Bible doesn't demand that. That's just the way it happened for me, providentially. So, immediately after I was saved, didn't really realize what had happened, though, because a year later, Amy and I, said, we just realized there was a new hunger for the Word. We weren't getting it there. We had to go somewhere else. Well, the Baptist church where Donna is in the uh, nursery, uh, they're nice folks. Let's go there. And, but we're going to visit around. You know, we're going to do the visit around thing. We're going to take our time. Walked in. Dr. Ron Long opened the Bible. They were in Ephesians going verse by verse. 
Man, never had, never experienced anything like that. Somebody actually teaching from the Scripture, not just reading a verse and closing the Bible and telling a bunch of stories. Actually going verse by verse, actually teaching the Bible. Got in the car, looked at Amy, ain't visiting around. This is where we need to be. Listen, fast forward a year later, I was coaching football at the time, I was teaching, so the pastor knew I liked young people. He said, look, we need a summer youth director. And I just blurted it out, how about longer term? <laughs> and he said, well, that'll never happen because we just had a bad experience with a member, a member youth director. That'll never happen. Okay, well, let's just, let me just, because they were looking for a youth minister at the time, and I, let me just put my name in the hat, we'll see what happens. And cut to the chase, they wound up calling me. But my, I had to go around to all the groups, deacons, Sunday school teachers, giving my testimony. And my testimony at the time was, this was a year after I was saved, but I thought I'd done the rededication thing. And I said, at age 12, I accepted Jesus as Savior. And at age 27, I made him Lord. But then as I studied the Bible, I realized there was no phraseology accepting Jesus as Savior. And we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And we need to agree to that. So, after realizing that and the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit working on my, my, my feeble mind that had so much catching up to do and my new heart that was hungry as all get out to know this stuff, I had to go back to every one of those groups, deacons, Sunday school teachers, blah, blah, and say, look, I, I gave you the wrong testimony, okay? And if you want to fire me right now, I've been a youth minister for a few months. If you hired me on the basis that I've been a Christian for roughly 15 years, when I've only been a Christian a little, for a little over a year, if you want to let me go, I will totally understand that and totally agree to that. And that Sunday, a Sunday night, I preached our pastor did a lot of traveling of, to revivals and stuff, and so I got some Sunday night preaching, and I preached on Sunday night, and I basically preached that. To, after I'd met with all these other groups, I preached to the whole congregation. You wouldn't believe how many people came up. At, but, <laughs> that's my story. That's my story. I, I totally, yes, yes. We don't accept Jesus as Savior. We confess him as Lord. That's the proof of our salvation. So there you go. That's what I'm trying to say. This is my deep concern, my deep heartfelt concern is that there may be some here, even baptized members of the church, who just want Jesus as Savior. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to go to the second death. But they also don't want to take up their cross and follow Jesus. They don't want eternal punishment but they also don't want lifelong allegiance to the lordship of Jesus. They don't want to go through the second death, but they give no real evidence of the second birth. They don't want to wake up one day in hell, but they won't wake up to God's call on their life. And sometimes they won't even wake up in here. And I pray that doesn't describe you. Now, you Israel travelers, you've got an exemption on the sleeping today. I understand. I understand you had a long flight last night, okay? Remember, what did Luke 2.11 say? We've been given a Savior. For unto you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior. Who is who? Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Saved people confess that and live accordingly.
Okay, real quick, let's try to get it another name. He's our shepherd. He's our shepherd. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Jesus' words. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's ponder that. Jesus as our shepherd, our good shepherd. And let's ponder it using that famous psalm, Psalm 23, verse 1. Verse 1 only, okay, for for time's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's consider three truths real quick. Got to listen fast, okay, by emphasizing key words, okay. The Lord is my shepherd. Literally, Yahweh is my shepherd. Jehovah, the great I am, the covenant God of Israel is my shepherd. Now, connect that to John 8, 58. What did Jesus say? He's in this argument. He's in this discourse, uh, pretty heated, hostile discourse with the, with the uh, Jews, the leadership of the Jewish religion, the li- religious leaders. And they're, they're bragging to Jesus about being sons of Abraham. You're, you're lecturing us? We're sons of Abraham. And remember what Jesus said? Before Abraham was, I am. And that connected him, that identified him with the covenant name of God. Remember Moses, burning bush? Okay, who are you? Who do I say? say, I am who I am. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm that same person. I'm God in the flesh. The Lord, Jehovah, is our shepherd. I could talk, I could talk so much more on that, but I got to go. That next, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Not maybe. <laughs> not maybe not. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll be my shepherd. Now, I wish he would be my shepherd. No, no. He is. He is, beloved. He is your shepherd. He is. It's a done deal. It's an indicative truth. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter about your emotions. For the believer, he is their shepherd. You can count on this truth. I can count on this truth. He is my shepherd. He will always, always lead me to green pastures and still waters. Always, always. Even when everything's going to hell around me, he will always lead me there. He will always lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. He will always guard my redeemed soul. Always. Why? Because he is my shepherd. He's not going to let the wolves get me. Ultimately. Ultimately. He's my shepherd. For sure. For good. For real. Now, right now, not he will be my shepherd when I get to heaven. No, right now, he is, is, present tense. He is my shepherd. He is your shepherd. Third, the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. Mine, mine. Denotes intimacy, a personal relationship. Jehovah is not just the church's shepherd, although he is that, he is that, but he's also my shepherd. He's also your shepherd, just like he is my high priest. Remember we talked about that on the letter H? Just like Jesus is praying for me as an individual 
and praying for you as an individual in the same way he is caring for you and caring for me, shepherding me and you as individuals. He knows us through and through. He knows us perfectly. He knows perfectly how to shepherd us. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that good news? Isn't that wonderful? It's almost too good to be true. Jehovah has chosen by an act of his perfect sovereign will to be my shepherd, to be your shepherd in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The great God of the universe has stooped down, has condescended, has, has descended from the, the heights of glory to the most debased vocation of that time, a shepherd. They could not even, they couldn't, they were, they were just the pits of society. He has condescended to be a shepherd to take care of you and me individually, personally. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Hallelujah. What did Jesus say in John 10? Okay, we kicked off this point with verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. Second part of the verse, he lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, the good shepherd knows his own. The good shepherd knows his own. Unlike the hireling, in verse 12, if you're looking at John 10, just like, unlike the hireling, the good shepherd defends the sheep to the death. The hireling runs away. He looks out for himself. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling just leaves him and runs away. He thinks of his own well-being and safety. Why? Because he does not own the sheep. He has no skin in the game. Or to put it more accurately, he has no blood in the game. Because the good shepherd owns the sheep through payment by blood, he's committed to their welfare. What does Psalm 100 verse 3 say? We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's why he's the good shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20 calls him the great shepherd. Listen, like, like sheep, we are weak, defenseless, foolish creatures. But God has more than made up for our massive shortcomings by giving us Jesus as our wonderful shepherd. So because Jesus is my shepherd... What's the result of that? I shall not want. I shall not want. In other words, I have all I need. I have all I need. Need, need. That's the key word, need. I have all I need. I might not have all I want, but I have all I need. As Jesus cares for me, he provides for me. My every need has been provided for. I want for nothing. I need Nothing, because Jesus is my shepherd, I have everything I need. I lack nothing, because Jehovah Jireh, my provider, my all-sufficient provider, is my shepherd. Left to themselves, sheep lack everything. They're about the most helpless of creatures. But when we belong to Yahweh, we lack nothing that is truly needed. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what the Bible says. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every, every, not a lot, 
Not a lot of them, not some of them, not half of them, not most of them, not a few of them. Every, every spiritual blessing. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things, all things, not some things, not a few things, not half the things, not 75% of the things, all things, all things that pertain to life, life, living, just living life and godliness, living life for the glory of God. Through what? The knowledge of him. That's why we're doing the study. That's why we're doing this. Through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need, every need, not most of the needs, not half the needs, not a few of the needs, not almost all the needs, every, every need, beloved, every need, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. As we approach Thanksgiving, we're going to do our dinner this Wednesday, Woo! can't wait. As we approach Thanksgiving, are you thankful that Jesus is your shepherd. Wow. You have everything you need. You have everything you need. The Lord is my shepherd. We shall not want. Hallelujah. Final word today goes, we started with Spurgeon, end with Spurgeon. Here we go. Our Lord Jesus desires us to think well of him, that we may submit cheerfully to his authority. We talked about that, right? An authoritative Savior. We want to submit cheerfully to his authority. High thoughts of him increase our love. Now, you see if that doesn't happen. High thoughts of Jesus increase our love, not just for him, but for one another. Because the same one that's my shepherd is your shepherd too. And And as I get to know my shepherd and how much he loves me, I know how much he loves you. Or I begin to learn how much he loves you. And so that results in me striving to love you like he loves you. Wow. High thoughts of him increase our love. Love and esteem go together. Therefore, believer, Think much of your master's excellencies. I hate to keep interrupting the Prince of Preachers, but let me just say this about that. I pray that our study, this study, you just won't just, all right, another name down, checked it off, and not think about it anymore the rest of the week. I pray that you will go home this way. Save your shepherd. What, what does that mean to me? I pray you will continue to ponder these things. Therefore, believer, think much of your master's excellencies. Study him in his pre-incarnate glory before he took upon yourself, himself your nature. Think of the mighty love that drew him from his throne to die upon the cross. Admire him as he conquers all the powers of hell. He's the death-abolishing Savior. See him risen, crowned, glorified, bow before him as the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God. For only in this way will your love for him be what it should. Let's pray together. Father, help us love you more and love each other better. Please do that. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race, following him that you've called us to. Thank you for this blessed table. 
bless our time together now as we remember what Jesus has done for us, rejoice in his work on our behalf, and joyfully commune with him in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.